Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's western Germany, that is over 2000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Therefore, it is full of events and stories that can represent European history like a microcosm. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows. What can you expect from this episode? Well, no more and no less than Charles the Great and what a lasting impression he had on the development of Cologne. So extensive was this Charles the Great's reign that we will even do two if not three whole episodes on Charles the Great's reign. That is the beauty of the time before us. Finally, finally, the availability of historical sources is improving. From now on, we will be able to delve much deeper into the topics. And I hope this record is quite clean and you can listen to it because it has been raining like every day now and then here in Cologne. And I even closed all windows. But I have to record this episode, so I can't wait until the weather gets better. And while I'm recording this, it is raining out of every bucket, as we would say in German, which means it's raining cats and dogs. And I really can hear the raindrops pounding on our windows. But anyway, this episode will be more of a biographical episode about Charles the Great and his closest friend, or one of his closest friends, Hildebold. This week, I don't have a random fact about Cologne for you, but something different there is another history podcast that I really like to listen to. I really do, otherwise I wouldn't recommend it to you, but hey, let's just play the tape so you can decide for yourself. I'm TK, your guide to the past as we uncover the people, events, and little-known facts hidden in the shadows of your old history textbooks. From empress baddies to activist profiles, turkey gods and the history of the toothbrush, tattoos, Pompeii peepees, and everything in between, you can find it all here. There's no telling how far we'll dig or how many historical facts we'll re-examine. No event is too small and no topic is too big because this is for the love of history. Thank you very much, TK. Lately, I really loved your episode about the Soviet Secret Service, KGB and their poison lab. We all know how messed up the Secret Service agencies were during the Cold War and maybe still are, but man, to hear it in such a detail is really disturbing. And as I told you, I would love to hear you make an episode about Roman Empress Agrippina, the founder of the city of Cologne. So far, so good. Off to the intro while the rain is pounding on my windows and there's an emergency car outside. Let's start this time with a legend that contains a lot of truth. We are in the second half of the 8th century. The Frankish king Charles the Great hears in his imperial palace in Aachen that the old bishop in Cologne has died. But the clergy in Cologne could not agree on whom they should elect as the new bishop. So Charles realized that 
he had to make a decision himself on the spot. In order to be able to travel quickly to Cologne, the king disguised himself and his bodyguard as a hunting party and rode off to Cologne. Nowadays, the journey from Cologne to Aachen, or the other way around in this case, would only take 50 minutes by car. In those days, however, it took two long days by horseback. After two days, Charles reached the Vorgebirge, a hilly land from that delimits the Cologne lowland to the west. Shout out to the fans of the first hour and those who still remember my first episode about the geographical features of Cologne. So, coming from the west, Charles could already see the city in the far distance along with the still existing intact Roman city wall and the Rhine plain. But before he rode on, he decided to stop briefly in front of a small church near a village almost directly in front of the city. Charles asked his bodyguards to wait outside and so the king entered the small wooden village church alone. The church was what a place of worship looked like in those times quite small and cramped. The church was almost empty. Only young priests stood in the front of the altar and sang a prayer song. The young priest was of ordinary stature, but Charles could see right away that he didn't just sit in the house of God all day. The young cleric's skin was clearly tanned by the sun which showed the king that he was busily looking after his congregation in the surrounding countryside. Charles also liked his voice, for he sang the verses in a firm and beautiful voice. At the end of the song the priest said another, Our Father, and was amazed at the visitor in his church whom he had probably not noticed at his back until then. Of course the priest did not recognize the king of the Franks as Charles was dressed in the clothes of the hunter and not of a commander. The fast ride of the last few days through wind and weather had done the rest. And so the young priest was all the more amazed when the huntsman reached into his coat in front of him and pulled out a gilded coin. That was worth a lot to ordinary people. Almost no one around here had a gilder in one's pocket. Good friend, one does not sacrifice gilders here. Please take the coin back, said the young priest. Charles, who was pleased with his little prank on the churchman at that moment, replied, Keep the gilder, I don't begrudge you the gilder. But the priest would not hear of it and insisted, I see that you are a hunter. If you really want to help me, bring me back some leather from the next hunt. See my missile book desperately needs a new cover. But please, I beg you, take this coin back. I really do not need this one. Now Charles the Great was surprised. He had truly found a modest churchman. Someone who did not, like so many other priests, increasingly accumulate wealth for his own benefit, as unfortunately happened again and again among the clergy. All right, Charles replied. I will get you the necessary leather. So Charles stepped out of the church again and ordered his bodyguards to go hunting, this time for real and not just for camouflage, and to get the leather for the priest. Meanwhile, the king, still disguised as a simple hunter, rode through the surrounding villages and inquired about the pastor of the local church. His name was Hildebold, and everyone, whether noble or commoner, had only good things to say about him. A few hours later, 
Charles handed over the promised letter to the priest and rode on to Cologne without having revealed himself to him beforehand. Young Hildebold was visibly puzzled by this encounter, but then thought nothing more of it. The next morning he had just said morning mass, he heard hooves clattering and horses neighing outside the church. When Hildebold stepped out of the church, the huntsman from the day before was sitting on a horse, with a sword and armor in a king's cloak. Good morning, my dear Hildebold, Charles greeted him. Forgive my deception yesterday. Rest assured nothing was further from my mind than to deceive you. But I had seen no other way to hurry to Cologne so quickly from Aachen without having to stop in every town and talk to the local nobles. I don't have to tell you who I am now. I just wanted to congratulate you personally. Congratulate you on what personally, my lord? I searched the whole city yesterday for a good man. No candidate in Cologne seemed suitable for the office. Except you, of course. Congratulations, Hildebold. You are the new Bishop of Cologne. And so it happened that in the year 787, Hildebold became the new Bishop of Cologne. What is true about this legend, and let me tell you, almost everything is true here. Let's break it down now. And above all, why is the appointment of Hildebold as a bishop significant for Cologne? Appointments of bishops happened all the time in those days, and even promoted by kings, it was also very usual for this time. Well, of course, it has something to do not only with Hildebold alone, but also one of the most famous men in European history, and that is Charles the Great, also known as Charlemagne, or as he called himself in documents in Latin, Carolus Magnus, or as we call him in German, Karl der Große. I thought about calling Charles the Great always Karl der Große in this episode, but then I thought you English listeners might still prefer Charles the Great. So, Charles the Great. Let's first take a step back and turn to this Charles the Great. And here, unfortunately, and I regret this deeply, comes a small setback. I would love to talk at length about Charles the Great. Everything, his biography, his work, the history of his reception, his wars, his faith, and so on. But you know what I'm going to say now, that would go beyond the scope of what we actually want to deal with here, the history of Cologne. But don't worry, I have a feeling that I will go into some detail about this. So here are all the necessary facts in a blatant fast forward. How did it actually come about that Charles came to the throne from the dynasty of the Carolingians? In the last episode, we ended with Charles' grandfather, Charles Motel, who became the only mayor of the palace of the increasingly powerless Merovingian kings. But he had not yet dared to make himself king. His son, Charles Martel's son, Pepin the Short, I love all those names from early medieval history, so Pepin the Short, who was also the father of Charles the Great, had fewer scruples. As I said, this is a very simplified historical account of the events. That is why it is expressed rather simply here. Pepin the Short 
was looking for a way out of the dilemma of possessing the real power as a mayor of the palace, but not being allowed to call himself the Frankish king, let alone finally retiring the Merovingians as a royal dynasty. So Pepin appealed to higher powers. He simply asked the Pope in Rome. Now, I have to go back and emphasize this. The Pope of the early Middle Ages was still far from possessing the power he would later have and nowadays still have. His shrunken and decaying city of Rome, of which he was bishop, was dependent on the protection of foreign powers. This had hitherto been provided by the Eastern Roman Empire in far away Constantinople, the Byzantine Empire. But as I said, Constantinople, the present-day city of Istanbul in Turkey, was far away, which also meant that the Germanic Lombards were able to conquer large parts of Italy with little effort, threatening the rule of the Pope in Rome. It would certainly not be long before the Lombards would also seize Rome. From the Pope's point of view, a new protective power was needed. The rising Franks were just the thing. Pepin's request, therefore, in the middle of the 8th century, enhanced the Pope's position immensely. For Pepin asked the Pope in Rome, of all people, whether it was all right for the Merovingian kings in the Frankish kingdom to have no power. The Pope in turn replied that it was better to call the one who had real power king, indicating that the mayor of the palace should be called king. And Pepin did not need to be told twice. He had the hair of the Merovingian king Childeric III cut off and sent him to a monastery as a simple monk where he spent the rest of his life. This is how unspectacularly the rule of the Merovingians ended, which had once been established with Clovis or Clotwig in the ruins of the Roman Empire in Gaul. But Pepin, a member of the Carolingians, was also ultimately a Germanic Frank, and thus he also carried on the tradition of his inheritance being bequeathed evenly to his respective sons. When Pepin the Short died in 768, he divided his kingdom between his sons Charles, whom we know as Charles the Great, and his younger son Carloman. As always, a very varied choice of names. And actually, the usual thing would have happened, which had already happened under the Merovingians. Both brothers wanted to take over the power in the entire Frankish Empire. But then only shortly afterwards, before the conflicts between the brothers could really break out, Carloman died after a short, serious illness aging just 20 years. Why and whether it was really just an illness is sometimes passionately debated by researchers. And so it came about that in the year 771, the young Charles was able to rule the entire Frankish Empire as a king all by himself. His long life for those times gave him a reign of 46 years from the year 768 to 814, which is a long reign for a monarch and head of state, even by today's standards, well, unless your name is Queen Elizabeth II. That is one of the reasons why the Frankish Empire flourished during this period as never before or since. There were simply no recurring major civil wars for almost 50 years. 
with the exception of a few family members from the late Carloman who, however very unsuccessfully, sought Charles's power. But this gave enough time and space to expand the Frankish Empire externally and consolidate it internally. And that is what Charles did. So that's the excursion of Charles the Great. A little bit. But let us also turn our attention to Hildebold. For our Hildebold of Cologne was a real person. The exact encounter as described here at the beginning of this episode in the saga, whether it really took place like that, who knows. But what is undisputed is that Hildebold was made bishop of Cologne through the promotion and power of Charles the Great. The two became inseparable friends. But whether Hildebold's beginnings were really so modest? Well, one cannot say for sure, but Kunibert had already belonged to the regional Frankish nobility of the Eastern Frankish Empire almost 150 years earlier. Therefore, it is perhaps not entirely improbable that Hildebold, 150 years later, also came from the Frankish nobility in the region. As is so often the case, we do not know much about the biographies of important people in the early Middle Ages until they become significant for history. It is the same with Hildebold. Until the time of his appointment as bishop in 787, we know nothing about him. Not even when he was born or where he came from. After being appointed bishop, Hildebold's career continued to rise steeply. Charles was a great fan of the late antique church father and theologian Augustine, whose thinking and writings had a decisive influence on the church of the European West. In keeping with Augustine's The City of God, the Civitate Dei, Charles wanted to realize God's kingdom on earth. Whereas the Merovingian initially worked together with the Christian church in a rather pragmatic why, for reasons of power politics, Charles went much further. For Charles and his successors, it is not enough that there are churches here and there and a few pagan temples left somewhere else. No, only God's word is to be valid. That is the word of the Christian God. All people within the empire have to submit to God's word. A great missionary wave sweeps the Frankish empire the whole of Central Europe, no matter whether in the cities or in the countryside. Where the structures for Christianization are not in place, monasteries or churches are founded through donations from charts. Rules are made that someday everyone, even servants, are required to visit church service. That Sunday is the day in Europe where still most of the businesses and offices are closed, is a clear and still visible legacy of Charles the Great. This development did not begin under Charles, yes, but hardly anyone can stand as exemplary for this revolutionary development as Charles the Great. Charles the Great strove for what he saw as a Christian empire with all the good and negative effects, like the fact that Pagan peoples such as the Germanic Saxons still lived directly on his doorstep east of Cologne between the Rhine and Elbe river was unbearable for Charles and so he started a 30-year-long war against them with very cruel mass killings. But we will come to the subject 
of the Saxons and Charles the Great and what this has all to do with Cologne in the next episode. But what does all this, what I just said, have to do with Hildebold? Well, as I said, Charles wanted to transform his empire into a great Christian empire. To this end, Charles interferes in local church politics. The encounter with Hildebold in the saga was probably just a nicely embellished anecdote. But in fact, Hildebold owes his appointment as Bishop of Cologne to his friend Charles. For Charles has great plans. Well, somehow he must have earned the epithet. This is how Charles proceeded throughout the empire. Anyone who wants to be installed as a bishop or important clergyman must first win Charles' goodwill. Otherwise, Charles himself selects the candidate he considers capable. But no bishop like Hildebold, and no other bishopric like that of Cologne, is held in such high esteem by Charles. In his will, Charles the Great even let it be known later that the diocese of Cologne was the, quote, most elegant bride of Christ after Rome, end quote. Now, that's a praise. In the year 791, only four years after being appointed bishop, Charles appoints his friend Bishop Hildebold as his arch-chaplain of the court chapel, as well as chancellor of his imperial chancellery. Two complicated titles for you, then the simple version, Hildebold, the Bishop of Cologne, was Charles the Great's most important advisor at his court. So you see, the increasing intertwining of empire and church is becoming more and more evident. Without the military protection and expansion and the donations of the crown, the Christian church could not have achieved the position it would later have in Europe. Without highly educated and capable priests and bishops who could read and write, were skilled in diplomacy and possessed great knowledge, like in science or medicine, effective administration of the empire would hardly be possible. Both sides are more and more interwoven and needed each other. But there was a problem for Hildebold. Under canon law, church law, Hildebold, as a bishop of Cologne, was not allowed to leave the boundaries of his diocese. Accompanying Charles the Great to Aachen was no problem. That was still within Hildebold's remit as bishop of Cologne, as Aachen was part of the bishopric of Cologne. But to accompany Charles, for example, on his war campaigns into the land of the Saxons in what is now northern Germany was then no longer possible. If you're wondering how exactly the borders of the bishopric of Cologne ran, we will come to that in the next episode. But Charles the Great would not have become the Great if he had not found a way out. Charles's good connection to the Pope in Rome, with whom Charles's father already had good contacts, provided a remedy. Hildebold was officially released from his residence obligation in Cologne by the Pope in Rome. Charles did not only want to expand his empire through conquest, he also wanted to unify it internally. We always talk about the Frankish Empire as a political unit, like it is one big country. But you must not forget, the Frankish Empire was a colorful mixture of peoples, Alemanni on the Upper Rhine, south of Cologne, Saxons to the north and east of Cologne, Gauls in what is now 
France, Italians here, and they are parts of the Gallo-Romans, and of course the Franks themselves. And they were not spatially separated from each other, but Cologne is a good example of this, lived right next to each other on the spot. All these peoples or ethnic groups had their own traditions and legal concepts, and that it was totally confusing for outsiders if they got to another area of the Frankish Empire. While one coin in your pocket might be accepted in one place, it might not be desired a few kilometers away. If these specifications apply to a unit of measurements or weight, they could be completely different in a neighboring town, like one kilogram, maybe only 800 grams instead of 1000 grams. Who knows? And since the end of antiquity, the knowledge of how to read and write had dramatically gone close to being extinct with the normal common people. Charles himself was annoyed by his personal weakness in that topic. He couldn't read and write well all his life, although he really tried to learn it, but he couldn't. The Roman Empire had indeed fallen, but in the numerous lectures of ecclesiastical scholars at his court, Charles learned about the fallen world empire of Rome and how it had once ruled the then entire known world under one ruler and one order, just like God's kingdom in heaven was ruled by one man under one order. And even if the city of Rome had largely shrunk to just a few tens of thousands of inhabitants, the stone ruins of the former city of one million people still stood. That must have made a lasting impression on Charles, who actually only knew buildings made of wood. So that's how it was when Charles became king of the Franks. And this prompted Charles to launch the so-called Carolingian Renaissance. Again, I have to digress and point something out to you. I personally find the term Renaissance or Renaissance misleading here. For this Renaissance or Renaissance took place for quite different motives than the later actual Renaissance, which sprang above all from the spirit of humanism. It would not be helpful to go into more detail. I would therefore call the Carolingian educational reform, as it is also used as an alternative to the naturalized term Carolingian Renaissance. And that is what it was, an educational reform. Roughly speaking, it encompassed three areas which were supported by numerous scholars from whom Charles summoned to his court from the year 777 onwards. The three areas include language and literature, architecture, and the renewal of knowledge from antiquity. The special thing is that almost all of these scholars were foreigners. They did not come from the Frankish Empire. Just to admit that, the lack of education could not only be remedied by one's own efforts, is something I find extremely remarkable for medieval ruler in that time. It is an aspect of Charles the Great, a Germanic Frank after all, that I think is given far too little attention. Almost all the scholars whom Charles invited to his court came from abroad, from Byzantium, so Eastern, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Eastern Mediterranean, from Britain, Italy, Spain, or other regions of the Mediterranean. The head of this court school was also an Anglo-Saxon named Alcuin, one of the greatest scholars and scientists of his time. 
or maybe the greatest. And Hildebold, our bishop from Cologne, was one of the few Franks in that Carolingian Renaissance. In the decades of the late 8th century, these scholars achieved great things. One cannot really overestimate the value that this educational reform had on Europe's development. Here too, in a very broad outline. For one thing, Latin as a language had suffered considerably since the fall of Rome 350 years earlier. This is devastating for Western Europe since Latin continued to be the language of the clergy with which Charles wants to enforce his missionary projects. From our partly secular point of view today, it is perhaps not so understandable why Charles urgently sought an improvement here. But Charles supposedly learned through a messenger that a priest at a baptism said in nomine patria et filia et spiritu sancti, so translated in the name of the fatherland, the daughter and the Holy Spirit. Oh dear, of course, that was not how it was supposed to be said. It was supposed to be said in nomine patris et fidi et spiritu sancti. Maybe if you're a Catholic or watched the old movie about Catholic churches in it, you might know this sentence. So, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Christian king Charles and also many of his Christian contemporaries feared the worst with such false blessings like at that baptism I just told you. If the sentence was wrong during his baptism, that would mean that without knowing it, the person was doomed to burn in hell that was something that could not be tolerated in the eyes of the contemporaries. Above all, Latin is also the language used for legal texts and documents, signs and diplomacy. In a multicultural empire as of the Franks, it was important to have a uniform and comprehensible language regime to rule out misunderstandings or deliberate manipulation especially since Charles could hardly be present everywhere in his empire at the same time. He sent many of his laws to his counts in writing by messenger. It was important that they could read and write Latin correctly, but also that they could decipher the letters of the text. With that reform of the Latin language, Charles laid the foundation that Latin stays up until in our time the language for science. No one can study law, biology, chemistry, physics or become a doctor without having some kind of understanding for Latin. Or even history. I had to prove that I'm able to read at least some amount of Latin and have some amount of knowledge in that language. If not, I would not have been able to graduate. Charles the Great sends his regards again. Thank you for that. Charles also decreed the introduction of a uniform script. Previously, there had been no uniform script in the Frankish Empire. So it happened that letters or documents were not legible everywhere. The so-called Carolingian minuscule provides a remedy. It is the form of writing that we still know today with its upper and lowercase Latin letters. The Romans only knew uppercase letters. So, if you look at your smartphone, read a book, or generally see a written text somewhere, like I do at this moment at my notes, you will clearly see a clear legacy from Charles the Great's reign again. 
Of course, only if you write Latin letters and not, say, Cyrillic or High Chinese. If I were to present you with a book from the time of Charles the Great, you would be able to read the text, at least from the letters, because of course the language used in that book would be in Latin. Always. In addition, legal requirements for officers in the empire were standardized. Likewise, units of measurements and weight as well as coinage. In this way, what had previously only appeared to belong together on a map grew together in real. I know I am wandering, but one cannot underestimate the Carolingian reform. It had a lasting impact on history. While in ancient times the Mediterranean was the great economic area of the then known world, with you know Cologne only being an outpost in the north, increasingly the economic power and also the political center of power shifted northward across the Alps to the countries we know today as France, Benelux and Germany. And hey, guess where Cologne is located at? Right in the middle of today's border region of France, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg and Germany. In addition to preserving Latin, Charles established Christianity definitely and permanently in Europe. With the exception of the small communities of Jews, there was no other religious community in the Frankish Empire. At the same time, the lively exchange with the Islamic empires in Spain, North Africa and even far away Baghdad provided important impulses for the reforms of the Frankish Empire. A good example for that exchange with the Islamic world? Charles had his own personal elephant that he got from the Caliph from Baghdad. Let's talk about local government in Cologne in the era of Charles the Great. We know that Cologne on the left side of the Rhine and Deutz on the right side of the Rhine in the Frankish Empire had each formed their own Gau, Old German for district. Those districts had been established since Klotwig. So in both districts a directly appointed count would have exercised political rule by the grace of Charles. But was this really the case in Cologne? Did a count really rule here? If so, we have almost no evidence of it for this time. Even during Cunibert's tenure as bishop, it was already assumed that the bishop himself ruled on behalf of the king as a lord of the city, combining spiritual power and secular power, and that there was no extra count in between. Especially with such a powerful bishop as Hildebald, the Charles's right-hand man, it is actually difficult to assume that Hildebald allowed himself to be talking to the political exercise of power on the ground in Cologne by some count. Unfortunately, we can only continue with a question mark here. But from the year 900 onwards, Cologne is demonstrably under the sole rule of the bishops in spiritual and secular terms. A small spoiler in passing. Even though the present-day city of Aachen is sometimes wrongly dubbed the capital of the Frankish Empire during Charles the Great's time, this is a false assumption. Aachen was only one of many so-called Pfalzen. You could just translate the German word Pfalz with the word palace in English, from where it derives, but this would be too simple and in some kind of way misleading. Pfalzen 
were only in temporary use when the king and later emperor was staying here. Those Pfalzen were quasi a ruler's own motel network in his empire. Those Pfalzen were places with mostly large halls, a palace, obviously, and enough agricultural estates that were directly under the control of Charles the Great, the king. You have to imagine, a king and his whole court, army and servants, traveling all the time? That was a big logistical effort. Therefore, each Pfalz had to be empowered to serve hundreds if not thousands of people at a time in an instant. Each Pfalz was staffed by a few local servants who ensured that the necessary supplies were immediately available in the event of a visit by the king. The king was always accompanied by a guard that rode to the next Pfalz in advance to prepare everything for the king's overnight stay in good time before his arrival. Nevertheless, Aachen was Charles' favorite Pfalz to stay at. He appreciated the hot water springs here and it was also here that he let the scholars do their work for his educational reform. And it was here that he had the most magnificent Pfalz in the Frankish Empire built. It formed the nucleus for today's Aachen Cathedral, a truly magnificent building. The dense network of Pfalzen throughout the Frankish Empire was there to provide for the ever-traveling king. For Charles and his successors, in general, traveled tirelessly to wage war or to check up on the local situation. To rule a realm like that has been called in German beautifully Reisekönigtum, or in English, traveling kingdom. Was there also such a Pfalz in Cologne? As an important city of the empire, this can of course be answered clearly. Of course, yes, there was a Pfalz. The Franks first reside in the Roman Praetorium, the former seat of the Roman governors, or in St. Gerion, outside of the city. Sigebert, the king of the Rhine-Franks, had stayed here in the Praetorium as had Clodwig, his successors, and of course the counts who administered the district of Cologne for the Frankish king. At least for the early Carolingian period, the father of Charles, for example, this is still assumed that he stayed at the Praetorium. For the mention of the history of the use of the Roman Praetorium increasingly disappeared until it vanished completely in the 8th century. What was the reason? What made the Roman Praetorium disappear? Was it the ongoing decay of the building fabric and the lack of knowledge of how to keep such a large stone palace in good repair? Had perhaps the Praetorium already been destroyed before the Franks took over? Was it perhaps a fire or an earthquake that ended the Praetorium's history of use? Sadly, we simply do not know, nor exactly when this happened. At least we can assume that the Praetorium no longer existed at the time of Charles the Great, except for the foundation walls which were discovered after the Second World War in the 1950s. Naturally, therefore, a new palace was built elsewhere in the city to provide Charles with a Pfalz in Cologne. It is assumed that this was south of today's Cologne Cathedral. The Cologne Cathedral did not yet exist. The rectangular bishop's church, which is simply referred to as the pre-predecessor of today's Cologne Cathedral, still stood here. I'll put a picture of a model of this bishop's church on my homepage. 
check it out in the companion post of this episode on thehistoryofcologne.com. And it's really cool to finally have a top-level domain. Some more recent excavations of the latter period suggest that there was really a palace here. However, there is still no definite proof of this. From a structural point of view, however, this would make sense as the palace of the head of the Church of Cologne was also located here in later times until well into modern times. Today's street am Hof, German for at the palace, is a remnant of this time. Thus, to the south of today's Cologne Cathedral, there was a huge, large rectangular courtyard complex with four wings of buildings around an inner courtyard that directly adjoined the bishop's church. Directly to the east of this courtyard was a well and latrines. The area of the palace was bordered by a well-known Roman harbour road in the south, which we have already encountered on our walk through Roman Cologne. The total area of the site was 83 by 52 meters. Similar dimensions can be found in other places from the Carolingian period. I will show you what such a files look like with a picture on my homepage. In Goslar, in what is now a city in Lower Saxony, such a palace and its grounds are still very well preserved. Well, they are 100% preserved. It's really great to look at it. I took a look at it from the outside once when I was passing through. Maybe I can still find a photo of it somewhere. The Pfalz in Goslar was built 300 years after Charles the Great, but it still gives a good impression of how such a building with its dimensions was embedded in a place. And yes, with Aachen Cathedral, you also have a form of Pfalz Chapel that you can visit even though it was constantly expanded over the centuries and completely transformed into a cathedral. But I can see, I've talked far too much again and I can't really concentrate anymore. Especially about Charles and his empire, I talked way too much. But this knowledge is necessary so that certain backgrounds can be understood. Charles set the parameters here in medieval Europe. They continue to have an effect in many parts until the year 1806. You can mention that a bit then. Self-praise stinks, but I think I've kept it reasonably short, considering how much there is to say about Charles the Great. A recent German documentary alone, which you can watch while staged on the couch in the evening, is a whole two and a half hours long. But enough about Charles and Hildebold for now. And don't worry, we will continue with both the next time. Let's return to the saga from the beginning, at the end of this episode. Whether the encounter between Charles the Great and Hildebold really took place in this way is not really of interest to me as a Cologne resident. The legend is so beautiful that I don't want to see it refuted. But the fact is, the church described really did exist. It stands in what is now the district of Lindenthal in Cologne. Is it there? That's right. It's still there today. It is the church of Alt St. Stephan, although almost no one knows it by that name. For the people of Cologne it is simply called the Krieladömchen, the little cathedral of Kriel. For as imposing as it looks like a cathedral, 
it is so small that it could be mistaken for a small chapel. And the best? Nowadays, it is made of stone. This building was only built about 100 years after Charles the Great and probably replaced the wooden church that stood here as in legend, but also in reality. Yes, it is not the same church that stood here in the year 787, but that doesn't bother me at all, because it still belongs to the same period of the Middle Ages. Because this church is really something special. It is so small and tiny, and almost its original early medieval state. Only here and there has a small extension been added. Since 1970, it has also no longer been a parish church, but it serves as a church for the Cologne College of Catholic Theology. As I said, Charles the Great himself was not in this building. However, it can be proved that Charles was in Cologne at least three times in order to set out from here on war campaigns against the Saxons. When he traveled from Aachen, where he liked to spend the winter, to Cologne in the spring, he would certainly have passed by this little church, the Krieler Dömchen. For me, this church and the area around it take you back in time about 1200 years. You must be thinking, what am I talking about here? But I swear to you, the church is simply enchanting. And you really don't have to be religious to see it. It's imposing because of its lifespan, and at the same time so modest in size and furnishings. When I entered the small church for the first time six months ago, it was really as if I had stepped into a time machine. Around it, the district of Lindenthal, the metropolis of Cologne, has long since grown around the Krieler Dömchen. Only the spot on which this church stands seems to have defied all the changes of time. It seems like nothing has changed here for almost a thousand years. It was once again a high phase of the corona pandemic. I was completely alone in the church, in the middle of which you almost stand as soon as you enter. Otherwise, I think only 20 people would fit into the church. Of course, I took a lot of photos. Check them out on my homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com. When I lit a candle for my loved ones and said a little prayer, I was really afraid for a moment that as soon as I turned around to the entrance, a king dressed as a huntsman would immediately stand there as he had done 1200 years ago and that he would give me a gilder coin. Would I reject the gilder? Mm, good question. I don't think I'm as modest as Hillebot from the saga, and after all, I'm half Dutch, and they are supposed to be stingy. Furthermore, I would really like to buy even better equipment for podcasting. All this echoing in my working room really annoys me sometimes. So, let's leave it this time. You will have noticed that as is usually the case in a biography episode in my podcast, we have not spoken of Hildebold's end of life. Charles II has not yet passed away in our story. No, the two gentlemen and their work are not yet over for our story about Cologne. Charles would wage war against the Saxons in the immediate vicinity for 30 years, and Hildebold would massively expand the power of the bishopric of Cologne and his episcopal rule, or should I better say the power of the Archbishopric of Cologne? Archbishopric? What is that? 
And what does it mean for Cologne? Good questions. We will answer these in the next episode. When? For the first time in its now almost 850-year history, Cologne would finally lose the characteristic that had always characterized the city until then. Being a city on the border. For that is what it had always remained, no matter whether under the Romans or the Franks. But Charles the Great's wars against the Saxons in the east led to the city of Cologne suddenly finding itself in the middle of the enlarged Frankish Empire. Next time you'll find out what lasting significance this has for Cologne and how clearly Hildebold exploits this for himself and his successors and for Cologne. I really have to learn not to spoil you too much. Anyway, Cologne is elevated to an archbishopric. Charles is surprisingly crowned as a Roman emperor. The Saxons are subjugated and of course we take a look around Cologne. For here too the Carolingian Renaissance unfold its influence in the city. Oh my, so much to talk about. How can I fit all of this in just one episode? As you can see, I'm no longer used to dealing with so many historical sources at once. And we are far from done with it yet. As always, thank you very, very much for listening. Recommend me further. And auf Wiedersehen.